following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Our passage for this morning is Philippians 3, 9 through 16, so please go ahead and turn there with me now. And if you're using the Bibles in the chairs in front of you, it's going to be on page 981. Even though I'm going to be focusing on verses 9 through 16 this morning, I am going to go ahead and read all of chapter 3 through chapter 4, verse 1, so we can keep the context of all of Paul's train of thought in mind as we look specifically at 9 through 16. And I also want to mention, too, that while none of the elders, none of us plan to have a mini-series between last Sunday and today on the nature of faith, um, it seems that in the providence of God, that's what happened. Weeks ago, I, I decided that I would be preaching on Philippians 3, and weeks ago, Caleb decided on Hebrews 11, and we didn't coordinate at all, but it's interesting because the uh, the main points that that Caleb was driving at last week in Hebrews 11 also are a lot of the same things that Paul is driving at in Philippians 3, verses 1 through 8, which is which is really the clear biblical teaching that the pattern of true faith is one in which our trust is only in Christ alone for salvation. And so in a moment, I will be going over verses 1 through 8 just to set the stage for our passage this morning. And I think when I do that, you'll see how some of the things that Paul says in there ties in with, uh, with Hebrews 11 and with the life of Samson as Caleb focused on it last week. So in God's providence, this actually, I guess, is kind of... Uh, the second of a two-part sermon series on the nature of faith. So with that in mind, uh, listen to me as I read this whole chapter, starting in 3, verse 1. This is the word of God. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal 
for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. God, we're thank you. We're, we're, we're thankful for this inspired text that Paul wrote through the power of the Holy Spirit, reminding us and, and emulating for us what it looks like to place our faith totally in Christ, not in of ourselves. And then to, in light of that, press on, knowing that we are now united to Christ, we press on, like Paul, to making Christ our own, toward loving him every day, looking around and seeing the abundance of good gifts that he's given to us, and meditating on his commands and rejoicing in them, seeking to obey them, because this is what we were made for. And you've given us new hearts to see that. Pray that we would live in light of these things and that your words in your scripture this morning would would just penetrate these things further into our hearts that we might feel the significance of them and believe them and do them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we are going to unpack our main passage this morning, which, like I said earlier, is verses 9 through 16. But before we do that, I do want to briefly focus on verses 1 through 8 because it does help us understand Paul's train of thought. So verses 1 through 8, they really could be a sermon on their own. And actually, Caleb kind of gave that to us last week in terms of understanding how Samson exemplifies what it means to look alone to the coming Messiah, or in our case now, look alone to Christ for hope and salvation. Paul, he, he makes the same point here in verses 1 through 8. If I could summarize it in a sentence, it'd be this. Faith in Christ is infinitely better than faith in ourselves or anything else. So take a look at verse 3. Here, Paul describes three priorities of the Christian life. The first two are stated positively, and the third is stated negatively, but they're all essentially saying the same thing. First, consider the first two. A Christian worships by the Spirit of God and glories in Christ Jesus. These two emphases of the Christian life demonstrate where a Christian places focus and where a Christian derives strength, which is the triune God himself. His worth, his power, his grace are where a Christian obtains strength to live a life of worship to God. And then, 
Now consider the third priority in this list that Paul gives us. A Christian puts no confidence in the flesh. This is essentially a negative restatement of the first two priorities. If a Christian is to live a life of worship to God and glory in Christ alone, then he cannot rely on his own self. And if there's any question as to what Paul means by this warning to not put any confidence in the flesh, he then spends verses 4 through 8 using himself as an example of this. And the bottom line in this example, of verses 4 through 8, is that Paul is explaining that he has a lot of very legitimate credentials and contributions in his life that would be considered very highly by the Jewish society he grew up in. But for Paul to place his faith in any of those would be great folly. It would be a, dis- it would be a subtraction from the glory of Christ, It would be a great minimization of Christ's saving grace in his life. And in fact, it would be a denial of the sufficiency of Christ to save and would be no gospel at all. The logic of Paul's presentation here is this. If Paul were to believe that he could could contribute anything to his salvation by his own merit and worth and achievement, then he would not be glorying in Christ Jesus, but glorying in himself. Paul is helping us to remember that we too should be searching our hearts for the all too easy to fall into temptation that we're looking somehow to ourself, really glorying in ourself, trusting in ourself for our, for our salvation and forgetting then the glories of Christ. We have nothing in ourselves to bring to God. And to pretend like we do is actually blasphemy because alone God is holy. So if we want to gain Paul, gain Christ as Paul has here, then we too must put away any trust in ourselves and look only to him. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the only legitimate object of faith. And so as we track then along with Paul's thought process as he's laying it out for us in chapter 3, we see then, like I've said, in verses 1 through 8, Paul is establishing a basic pattern of faith. And the pattern is we look away from ourselves and look only to Christ in sure hope for salvation. And then, as we'll see, in verses 9 through 11, Paul dives deeper into the foundation of this faith, which is ultimately the righteousness, justice, and mercy of God displayed through Jesus Christ. And then we'll see in verses 12 through 16 that he, f- that he describes then the action of true faith, which is to say what a faith lived out looks like. And then finally, and, and we won't actually be able to get to this today, but just to kind of round out Paul's thought process here in chapter 3, in verses 17 through through chapter 4, verse 1, Paul again encourages his readers to remember the pattern of true faith. Amidst the challenges of daily life and the challenges of unbelief around us, Paul is encouraging us to confidently trust in Jesus as we know that he's going to make all things new one day, just as he has saved us on the cross. And so with that in mind, 
I'm going to turn our focus now to the verses that I said as our main passage this morning, verses 9 through 16, and I'm going to break down the ideas of the of foundation of true of Paul describing the foundation of true faith and the action of true faith into three points. So if you're taking notes, then this is the outline for the rest of our time as we dial into this particular passage. So first point is this. We're going to look at verses 9 through 11 to understand the foundation of true faith, which is what it means to be united to Christ. Two, we're going to look at verses 12 through 14 to see the action of faith, which Paul describes as a daily pressing on to gain Christ. And three, we're going to consider verses 15 through 16, which is where Paul then kind of extends the idea of the action of faith to show where it leads, and that is Christian maturity. So moving into our first point then, understanding union with Christ, let's look at verses 9 through 11. I'm going to read them again. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In these verses, Paul, like I've said before, he is describing the foundation of, of true faith. So do you see that phrase in the be- very, very beginning of verse 9? Found in him. The foundation of faith is a Christian's status as being found in Christ, in him. Paul describes faith as one that is not founded on our own righteousness because we have none, but rather the foundation of faith is the righteousness that comes from God. So here, Paul is touching on some key Christian fundamentals. He's discussing the relationship between these three ideas. Christ's death and resurrection, the righteousness of God, and the faith of God's people. So how do these three realities then connect in the gospel? Some have called this the great exchange. Here's what I mean by that. In Christ's death on the cross and resurrection three days later, he took on the wrath of God in our place and defeated death and sin. He bore the weight of what God's righteousness demands, which is punishment for sin on our behalf. And so now, because of Christ, the call goes out and there is an opportunity for any sinner to come to God to receive forgiveness for their sins. But then, how is the sacrifice of Christ connected to a sinner so they may be saved? Well, the connection point is Christ's sacrifice through applied to a sinner through faith. And so what is faith? Well, Paul, he does define it here. Look again at the text. Verse 10, that I may know him. So there it is. Faith is a knowing, a trusting It is putting your full trust in Jesus Christ, the God-man who gave himself up for you, knowing that he bore God's wrath so you could have his righteousness. This is the foundation of true faith, the great exchange of Christ's righteousness for our sinfulness through the death 
and resurrection of Jesus Christ applied to all Christians through faith. And let me make a brief aside here. If you're sitting here today and you're skeptical of this good news of salvation through Jesus Christ, maybe you're skeptical that sin is really all that bad or that God is, maybe he's not really that holy that Jesus would need to die to make us right with God. Please consider Paul's words here. And I pray that God would use them to cut to your heart, that you would turn from your sin, and that you would place your faith in Christ alone as as Paul is instructing us here. Continuing to verses 10 and 11, we see that Paul extends this idea of the great exchange as the foundation of our faith even further. So let's look at verses 10 and 11 again. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Here Paul peers deep into the mystery of a believer's union with Christ, stating that we somehow are actually united to Christ in his death through our sufferings, in that perseverance in our sufferings brings about in us a greater understanding of the significance of Christ's resurrection, but also our future promised resurrection to come. The sufferings that Paul mentions here are twofold. So the first idea of suffering here that we see in in verses 10 and 11 is the idea of suffering as fighting sin. But hold on, is fighting sin really a type of suffering? Well, no, but yes. So it's not a type of suffering when we consider that fighting sin should be the most obvious choice any of us ever make, right? Because we know that God is holy. We know that he has made us to pursue him and and to love what he loves. We know that sin is foolish, that it leads to judgment and spiritual death. And so in all these senses, to give up sin is perfectly sensible and and a good thing and a righteous thing to do. And so in this sense, no, it's not suffering. But we recognize that fighting sin is also described in the Bible as dying to self. And it it is hard. Sin at times feels and seems very satisfying. And so because we have this nature, these dual natures fighting in our hearts when we are saved, we, we, we know the truth of God's word and what it says about living righteously, and, but we also have this old self in our hearts and we don't want it all the time. So in that sense, we are, we are called to die to self and there is a level of suffering that goes on. It's a good kind and God calls us to it, but it is a type of suffering. The second type of suffering then to mention here is the, is the type of suffering that occurs when circumstances are outside of our control and we deal with challenges in life. This could be to a whole host of things, but it could be death, sickness, difficult relationships, any other challenges we face in life that are outside our control. But the truth is, both types of sufferings point us to remember the immeasurable suffering of Christ on the cross. Suffering points us to remember the weight that Jesus bore on our behalf. He took hell for us, and it points us to remember that. 
Sufferings also, though, point us to remember the sweetness that is coming when our redemption is complete, when we are raised from the dead at the end of time with perfect natures and no more sin. I'm not saying any of this tritely about suffering. Of course, suffering in life can be very painful, hard, challenging, and sometimes even just unexplainable. But nevertheless, Paul is saying that for the Christian, all of life's sufferings are still meaningful in that they unite us to the sufferings of Christ and they remind us of what Jesus suffered for on our behalf. And they even fill us with hope in knowing how sweet life in our resurrection bodies will be as sweet from, as, as free from sin, free from death, free from suffering and worshiping Christ forever. These are precious implications of what it means to be united to Christ. And for those we know who are currently apart from Christ, this is one reason why we labor for them to know the truth, because we want them also to experience God's many blessings as we have experienced them in him. And then this brings me to my second point this morning. In verses 12 through 14, we see how Paul explains that the action of faith, what faith looks like acted out in real time, is a striving to win Christ. And as I get into this, though, I want to pause to make an important distinction here between two words that are critical to understanding the Christian faith. Justification and sanctification. Justification is what we've already been discussing in verses 9 through 11. Justification refers to our standing before God. Our standing before God is, of course, accomplished by the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it has nothing to do with our works at all. Our faith in Christ, our Savior, connects us to him so that we are united to him, saved by his sacrifice, and seen as righteous by God through Jesus alone. But sanctification is different. It does have to do with our works. Sanctification is our growth in holiness and righteousness. Prerequisite, though, to sanctification is our justification. If we aren't justified before God, we can never then mature in Christ. This is because what happens in our justification is a change in our affections. The Bible calls this giving us a new heart. These newfound righteous affections in our heart for the things of God replace our old sinful affections for the things that oppose God that are also in our hearts. And up until we die, we as Christians will always feel a tension between these new and old affections, the new and old self. And yet, as we grow in Christ, we can say with Paul at the end of verse 11 that by any means possible we may attain the resurrection from the dead. And what Paul is saying here is that he is willing to throw his whole weight, heart, and soul behind a pursuit of righteousness in this life such that it's almost like he's already been resurrected and made perfect. Because his affections have changed, he now strives to obey God by any means possible. 
And so it's at this point then, at the end of verse 11 and on into verses 12 through 14, that Paul now describes the action of faith for a Christian, which is the effect that the union with Christ, the reality of united with Christ, has on a Christian's daily life. This is why understanding the difference, as I've just gone over, between sanctification and and justification, this, this is why understanding the difference between those two things, those two realities, as we grapple with this passage, is really important. Because what Paul is not saying is that his intense striving saves him. Rather, he's simply reflecting on the fact that now that he is saved, what does he desire? What new effect do these new desires have on his daily life? Their effect is profound, and he describes it in verses 12 through 14. So look at these verses again. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You could say that because he is in Christ, Paul makes it his life goal to win Christ. He is justified, therefore he aims to be sanctified. He is by no means perfect. He doesn't want anyone to think he is. Rather, in spite of his many sins that he still wrestles with, he presses on. He strives, he forgets distractions, and he strains forward with all his might. Note that when Paul here says that he forgets what lies behind, what he's not advocating for is that we all forget important lessons we've learned from the past. What he's emphasizing instead is that we all forget all hindrances which distract us from believing the truth of the gospel and obeying him. This could be past sinful tendencies, past lies we've believed, past worries we've had, All these things that Paul is exhorting us to leave behind, these are the things that are not helpful to Christian growth. His mind is single-focused on one thing. He has a godly unsettledness. He is not content to just stall out where he's at in his knowledge of and trust in Christ, but instead he uses athletic language. It's an athletic metaphor. It's as if he's a runner with the finish line in sight, or an archer with the target in his scope. He knows what he's aiming at, and he pursues it wholeheartedly with godly grit, determination, steadfastness, and he's aiming at knowing the fullness of who Christ is and what he has done and the obedience that rightly accompanies such knowledge and trust. This should be both convicting and encouraging to us. Because Paul emulates for us what it means to intensely desire and pursue Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, with our whole lives. It takes work, wisdom, perseverance. It takes intentional striving, Holy Spirit wrought striving even, because we know that's the Holy Spirit who works in us, the desires to, to know and love God. But because living in conformity, to the things of God is what we are made for. The work required in our pursuit of sanctification is completely worth it.
The challenge, of course, though, as we know, comes into play when we feel our desires for sin as a strong competitor to our desires for righteousness. And this is a common occurrence in the life of every believer, and sometimes it's so common we're blind to it. So what do we do in these cases? Well, we need to go back to contemplating our justification, preaching the truths of verses 9 and 10 to ourselves, remembering all the sin that Jesus saved us from, and how going back to our sin would be a foolish endeavor, offering only counterfeit pleasure. We remember that we are a changed people, that we now love what God loves, and that we have a new righteous affection for God, his good gifts, and his commands. And as we remind ourselves of these things again and again, their truth will sink down into our hearts and minds, and we will feel the weight of it all, finding it increasingly easier over the long haul to obey Christ rather than our selfish hearts. And I do want to take a moment here to stress again that Paul is emphasizing here that he is not perfect, nor does he think he can attain perfection in this life. Perfection comes when we are raised to new life on the last day. And so then what does that mean for us here in this room? It means that when, as Christ's local body of believers, when we're pursuing sanctification together, there is no reason for any of us to act like we have it all together. We, of course, know that we're all sinners. And instead, we should eagerly confess sin to one another, help each other as we wrestle with sin and fight it in our lives. And then, of course, when, when we are confessing sin to one another, we, we shouldn't be surprised at the sin in one another's heart but, or the sin in our hearts, but all the more prayerful for one another because we know we all have a lot of maturing to do and we all want to help each other grow. We should also have humble hearts ready to give and receive rebuke and correction because we all recognize that we need the help of our brothers and sisters in Christ to continue maturing in Christ, and without them, we wouldn't see our blind spots. Another way to say all this is, in keeping with Paul's athletic metaphor, we are to strive to win Christ in this life. There is a question, though, and I think an obvious question, why does Paul strive to win Christ when he's already in Christ? How, how can you win what you already have? Well, look at the last part of verse 12. Paul says this, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul's order of events here is crucial, and it is marking the pattern of the Christian life. Christ Jesus makes us his own, and then we accordingly press on to live in the reality of what we already are in Christ. And so now, my third and final point here, let's look at that in verses 15 through 16. Paul describes here how a Christian ought to view maturity. And I've got a couple of thoughts on what Paul is saying about Christian maturity in these verses. So let, let's look at verse 15 first. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Okay, mature Christians think what way? Well, what Paul has just explained in verses 12 through 14. Christian maturity means realizing we always have more maturing to do. 
and Christian striving means we always have means realizing that we always have more striving to do. And so this reality doesn't discourage us, but like Paul, we press on and we recognize that the moment we let our guard down and we feel we've got no more maturing to do or that we're doing all right is the moment that we stop to put sin to death in our hearts is the moment we stop taking it seriously, the moment we stop taking God's holiness seriously, and then we start to proceed toward immaturity quickly. And I think what Paul is exhorting us to here really hits home when we consider that Paul is writing this letter likely from a Roman prison, likely near the end of his life, awaiting his death. So this would be a time when the temptation would be easy to throw in the towel because, hey, life is already over and, hey, I've, I've, I've been faithful. I can just ease off the gas. But Paul is exhorting him, he's exhorting himself and the Philippian believers, and by extension us too, to press on toward maturing in Christ more and more. There's not a position in time in our life where we can just let off the gas. And that goes back to remembering that pursuing God is what we're made for, so why would we want to let off the gas in the first place? So how much more then ought we press on in the same way as Paul? Continuing with this idea of Christian maturity in these last two verses of our passage, it's important that we see also here that Paul is exhorting us to bear with one another. Look at the second part of verse 15. Paul, he makes an allowance here for time for those Philippian believers to come along in their understanding of the importance of striving in the Christian life. He's granting that not everyone who will come to read his letter will come to instant agreement with him in the truths that he's just presented. This is not him softening his conviction on these things. Rather, he's confidently presenting the truth of God in his letter, and then he trusts God to work conviction in the hearts of God's people. This is a model for Christian persuasion that we can learn from. Absolutely, pointing one another to the truth in our fellowship together is important. We must do it, and we must not neglect that. But another side of this is patiently and prayerfully waiting on God to develop deep convictions of the gospel and its implications in all of our hearts. So then one more thought on Christian maturity in these last verses. Let's consider how Paul, in verse 16, boils a lot of my discussion this morning into a single phrase. He says, Only let us hold true to what we have attained. What is he referring to here? What have we attained that we must hold true to? Well, this takes us back to where we started. Paul is again pointing us to the reality of a Christian status as united to Christ. Union with Christ is what we've already attained. And so, a life of Christian maturity is one that starts out with remembering our union with Christ and all then of Christ's benefits given to us through that union with him. And, and to further make the point here, 
Think about, too, how, how Paul, he reemphasizes the same idea at the very end of this whole section in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Again, Paul is here patiently and pastorally reminding the Philippian believers to stand firm in the Lord. So church, stand firm in the Lord. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember you are united to him in his death and resurrection. Remember that your trials in this life are not in vain. Remember that he is glorified in your obedience to him. Do not lose heart. When we hold true to these things and meditate on them, our hearts will gradually enlarge with greater and des- greater desire for God and his commands. And this is what progression in sanctification looks like in the Christian life. So let me retrace then Paul's line of thought that we've gone over this morning. We saw first in verses 1 through 8 that Paul is reminding us ultimately that Jesus Christ is the only legitimate object of faith. Everything else is a counterfeit faith. The pattern of true faith is to look continuously away from these counterfeit faiths and keep looking and relooking to Christ alone for your justification. And from there, we took a close look at verses 9 through 16 for the bulk of our time this morning to see that the foundation of faith is is on the merits of Christ alone and then the effect that Christ has on our lives, which is the action of faith. We saw clearly in these verses three points. One, our union with Christ is foundational to Christian living. Two, the outflow of a Christian's union with Christ is a life that strives hard to live for him. And three, that an important aspect of Christian maturity in this life is our understanding that we'll never have it all together in this life, that we will never attain perfect righteousness, and yet it is still our great joy to pursue Christ with all the strength that he works in us because of the new affections that he has worked in our hearts. Paul is calling us to remember that in light of our redeemed status as being united to him, it is our joyful duty to strive to win him, to gain him every day. This, of course, is not to say that we don't have, that we, that we have Christ somehow any less at the moment of our, of our justification compared to now, but it is to say that as we obey Christ in this life, we grow more deeply to love him. We more, appreciately, we more deeply appreciate all he has done for us and more deeply appreciate what he has promised to do for us in the end of time. This is what it means to gain Christ every day, is to love him more and to follow him. So the call then, finally, is this. Remember who you are in Christ. Let that guide your heart and soul and mind into a dedicated, godly striving after all he has called us to be and do, to call one another to the same, and to do it all for our joy and for his glory. Let's pray.